Welcome back to Crazy Faith Talk. I'm Erica. I'm Sarah. And I'm Steve. So friends, we have been talking about Christian nationalism, uh, and we have taken a look at several different avenues of talking about Christian nationalism. We have done an overview and introduction. We have looked at some ways that nationalism has gone awry in the Bible, and then most recently, we talked about the historical perspective of Christian nationalism and all of the pitfalls that have landed Christians in being Christian nationalists. So what does it mean when you have a a state church who is making it illegal to be anything but Christian? And what's wrong with that? So that is was all covered last episode. Um, so what are we going to talk about today, Steve? Well, today we're, we're taking on the question of what does Christian nationalism look like in our time and our place and how do we spot it? And then maybe related to that, how, what, what do we do about it or how do we engage it? And we're, some of that's going to spill over into a future episode about what's the difference between advocating for the reign of God and advocating for your nation's interests with a, you know, draping it with a cross. Um, And I think one of the things I found really helpful in our conversation last time is it seems like we're, we're half decent at spotting Christian nationalism and at least its perils when it's removed from us in hindsight or distance to another place, right? That Mm -hmm. I've heard lots of people say, and I mean, I grew up, uh, you know, in, in, uh, uh, classrooms and, and with teachers saying like, boy, how could people back in World War II have not have seen that Nazism was bad? How could they not have understood that it was wrong for Hitler to co-opt the church? Or how could they not have understood and that it seems so obvious to us? And I, I get that. Yeah, it seems obvious. We might also in, in this moment in history be watching the news unfold to say the, the war going on with Russia's invasion of Ukraine and saying, oh my goodness, how can people not see that uh, that, that doesn't jive with the character of Jesus? And maybe our flabbergasted to watch stories of like the Russian patriarch of the Russian Orthodox Church giving pronouncements, blessing the war and saying this is God's will and that they're on the side of righteousness when lots of other voices, not only Ukrainian Orthodox voices, but even Pope Francis and plenty of other voices around saying, no, this this isn't, this doesn't fit with the, the way of Jesus. This is Christian nationalism run amok. And when you've got a church that is wedded to political power, it becomes in their vested interest to do whatever the state says is good for the state, even if that means conquering or invading another country. So to me, it feels like if if we here in America can watch that unfolding on the news and go, no, that ain't Jesus. Why are they, why are those priests blessing that missile? Um, if you've just caught stories like that, um, then maybe the question becomes, how do we do the harder work of looking at ourselves? Because it seems really, really easy. Jesus even points out easy to start looking at the speck in our neighbor's eye when there's logs in our own and easy to imagine only other people have this problem. But how do we begin the conversation of looking at where Christian nationalism might be doing dangerous things where we live in our time and place when we don't have the luxury of being removed in history by 75 years or an ocean and a continent away? How do we do that where we live? I I think something else that makes this conversation even more difficult is because we're living in it right now, um, living in our country where there is a lot of political discourse 
there's a lot of emotions tied up with our politics right now. And politicians who are willing to tug on our heartstrings to try to get us to see their way. Um, and further complicated is that in theory, we have a two party system. There are of course, smaller political parties, but they don't seem to hold a lot of power. Um, but I think that we are seeing and living through a really major party shakeup and change. Mm. Um, our political parties of Democrat and Republican look very different today than they did 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And um, that's really hard when, you know, the far right who are, who, in my opinion, are Christian nationalists are doing it under a political party. They are doing it under the political party of Republican. And so you have these lifelong Republicans who are not Christian nationalists, but will hear people say, you know, oh, this Republican candidate or senator or president or whomever is a Christian nationalist and will be very offended because they feel like it's a personal attack on them as a Republican. And I think that we're seeing the Republican Party in particular start to kind of splinter and divide because of this, but it hasn't quite fully happened yet. And it might not happen. It's, I can't predict the future, but we're seeing, we're seeing our binary political parties start to shift and fracture and there's a lot of emotions and loss and grief, I mm. think, in that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that makes having this conversation, <clears throat> I think, that much harder. Sure, sure. And I think, too, it's it's worth saying that in throughout our country's history, multiple parties, and even prior to the existence of Democrats and Republicans, the prior parties as well, there's always a certain pull of nostalgia and whatever party wants to use the man things are great in an earlier era and especially if that's framed as in an earlier era we were more one particular religious makeup it becomes easier to package whatever your present tense agenda is with and i promise to make us more like we used to be and we sort of in the lens of nostalgia sort of imagine only the good things that came with that previous era and assume that was because you know a particular religion had more power, whether it was official and and, and encoded or established power or soft power, it's easy to imagine, man, things are great when all we cared about was what Christians thought and we should return things to that way. Man, that's a powerful appeal, even if it's not true. It certainly is a powerful appeal. Uh, We should probably also say, too, that um, Christian nationalism takes different different forms or different kind of voices and sometimes it's subtle and pernicious and insidious and sometimes it is just like over the top out loud and that the way we engage it is going to be different depending on the ways that it gets voiced or is strategized that kind of thing you know like um uh, and we had even said there's kind of a continuum in our very, very first episode in the series. We talked about the difference, I think, helpfully between, say, patriotism and nationalism, and that it is absolutely fine and good to be able to appreciate the good of the country from which you come. And like that hymn we all talked about, This Is My Song, to say I love my, my country's skies and our hills and our mountains and the things that are good about it. And that as long as you're also able to say... But just because it happens in my country doesn't mean we're always right and everybody else is wrong. Like there is a line there that um, there are ways where a more subtle Christian nationalism 
shows up in some ways and more overt ways uh, need to be addressed or, or called out in different ways, maybe. Yeah. So uh, do you all remember Sarah Palin? Mm-hmm. So I think that she was probably a very early obvious candidate of Christian nationalism but she wasn't like obvious in the sense that she was like oh Christian nationalism but um her language was very telling and at the time like I just thought she was nuts but um you know she she had this language of real America like you know she was going to go to the rural states she was going to go over to the flyover states because that's where real america was like she seemed to have this very clear sure image of what america was in her mind and if you didn't fit that image then you weren't american and, and i think in, in some ways this is when sometimes in in political discourse they talk about uh politicians or or movements using dog whistles right that sometimes instead of saying the actual thing it's sort of all right we'll use coded language and if you're in you know what i'm really talking about so when i talk about real america it's clear it's you look and pray and worship like me uh and if you're not like me you're you're not a real american that that doesn't have to say the words christian nationalism or we want to wed make it there would be an official uh, state church or something, but it sort of hints at that in a way, kind of like uh, in, in the civil rights movement, there was sort of dog whistle language about, uh, you know, racial language, you know, that, that uh, a lot of the movement that became, we need to have states rights. It wasn't really about states rights. It was, we want to have the right for our local state to preserve Jim Crow, but that, that won't fly in some circles. So we can say the importance of our states need to be able to choose what we do. What do we want to choose? Well, we want to be able to choose segregation. Um, and that, just like, and, and maybe this is a helpful analog, that just like I think it's an important wake-up call uh, for for folks that racism doesn't only look like people being in the KKK and burning crosses. That's the obvious kind, but there's a lot of other more subtle forms as well that show up um, that Christian nationalism has overt forms that sometimes just come out and say, there shouldn't be any separation between church and state. There should be an official Christian religion. After all, that's what we're supposed to be. Uh, and then more subtle forms as well that uh, sometimes um, are, are a little more insidious or use dog whistle kind of language. I, I guess I would hope that our, our survey of history in our last episode um, kind of raised why it can become so dangerous for any particular religious group to sort of decide we're the only ones who should have power or that we're the only ones who should be full citizens of a, of a country. We know whether, whether it's the ancient Byzantine empire or a country in the 21st century, I hope it became clear once, once you make that move uh, it becomes really easy to guard again, really hard to guard against not treating somebody like they aren't worthy of basic human dignity because they don't share your particular faith. Um, and that that's part of the insidious danger in any time or any place. So it does make me wonder, though, because I think that we are seeing an uptick in Christian nationalist candidates, political candidates who may or may not be being elected. Um, what do we do when we spot Christian nationalists in the political sphere? Sure. Sure. Um, I, I guess one thing that might be worth naming is um, there's a, a group that I have seen um, 
do some decent scholarly work in the last year or two called Christians Against Christian Nationalism that are trying to do the, the good, solid and, you know, orthodox, not in the capital O sense, but like, you know, broad, you know, broadly acceptable, uh, you know, Christian backgrounds from all sorts of different denominational backgrounds, making the, the clear both scriptural and theological case that uh, Christian nationalism is, is not a good practice for us in America in the 21st century. Um, and there, and those that, like I said, the name of the group is Christians against Christian nationalism. You can find good resources that they've put together as a, as a Lutheran. I know our presiding Bishop has been a part of their, uh, talks before the presiding Bishop of the Episcopal church, other peace traditions have certainly been a part of their work as well. Um, and that 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 kind of grouping, those those would be voices to at least listen to and explore and go like, OK, what's the case that they have to make? Hopefully we've kind of echoed a little bit about like why there could be dangers about that. But they're also helpful at identifying where are places where you're seeing more overt Christian nationalist arguments showing and, and how how do you respond to it? So one place for basic pure information, if this whole topic is new to folks who are listening, that's a fantastic uh, beginner primer resource to start is Christians Against Christian Nationalism and read what they have to say. I guess I think too, it's worth the difficult truth telling. And certainly this falls to some degree on us as pastors whose job it is to try and tell the truth, um, but an honest truth telling about Christian history and how, how like, and like we've tried to do in this, in this uh, series, and not just to immediately focus on the last 250 years of American history, although also to name that, but to say, even, even prior to American history, there have been experiments in religious uh, nationalism and Christian nationalism, whether it was a single nation state or a Holy Roman Empire or whatever, and to, to note, there are terrible things that have been done in the name of uh, promoting Christianity, and those are things not only to be seen and confronted and faced, but also to be confessed and lamented, you know, like to be able to say, as a lot of church bodies have done, we need to repent of the doctrine of discovery, that we just had the right, uh, because we are Christian colonizers from Europe, to take whatever land we wanted, um, and uh, that th those things were not acceptable, and that that was not in the spirit of Christ or the way of Jesus. I think those are things that help us to see this isn't about scoring immediate political points for any one person's party, but to be able to say, we have to wrestle with how we've, we've screwed this up for the better part of 17 centuries. I think it's also being able to recognize as Big C Church that in a lot of ways, we can't separate our faith from our politics, mm, okay. that those two things should inform and influence the other mm -hmm. um that just because we don't have a state religion doesn't mean that we as christians don't have political opinions sure um and to do that in a, an authentic way without being bullies sure 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 you know like you can i think that we can speak in the political sphere without being bullies and without being jerks. Yeah. And I, I think in this may be, I realize that we're planning on having a whole episode a little more devoted to, okay, what do we do positively if we are trying to not just fall into the trap of Christian nationalism? Um, but that, that's an important point that like, if, if, if our faith is only relegated to, we only say spiritual things or we only talk about the afterlife, we aren't being faithful to the spirit of Jesus or the way of Jesus either, who says very plainly, like in his opening sermon in Nazareth, 
I've come to bring good news to the poor, liberation to the captive, let the oppressed go free, um, and who seems to, to think that his movement very much has to do with how we live together in community uh, in this moment, not just after we die. And the early church, not only in the book of Acts, but in those early centuries before Constantine, certainly had a sense of their faith made a difference in how they lived and the kind of things that they advocated for. Um, so I, I think that's important. We don't want to lose uh, that, that important part of our history and our legacy. And I think that's a temptation in our culture as well. Sometimes the, the, the deal with the devil you end up making in, in 21st century America is, okay, separation of church and state means no church or Christian should ever say anything publicly about anything that ever happens. And that's the deal we make. That's how we, you know, say tax-free as churches or something like that. And that feels like that's a distortion too, maybe. How, how do we avoid the temptation of just wanting to get more power? Um, and how do we also not let ourselves off the hook to speak honestly or truthfully when we have to? Well, clearly this is very challenging because <laughs> a lot of it feels like it's such a fine line mm-hmm. that we are walking, right? Yeah. Like um, my understanding of separation of church and state is that I don't think it's appropriate for me to stand up in the pulpit and to say, vote for this candidate. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't think that's appropriate. Um, at the same time now, though, we are now seeing political candidates who I so strongly disagree with that it's really hard for me to not stand up and mm-hmm. say, hey, don't vote for Dr. Mm-hmm. Oz. <laughs> don't do it. Don't vote for Candace Taylor. Granted, my, you know, my, my parishioners aren't eligible to vote for Candace Taylor. She's in a wrong state. But like, you know, I want to like stand up and say, hey, don't vote for these Christian nationalists who may or may not be white supremacists. Like, don't do it. Um, But like, because I think that that's probably inappropriate for me to speak against specific candidates from the pulpit. Um, But at the same time, I think that we can have open and honest conversations about, you know, some of the platforms that these candidates are taking Mm -hmm. and where are we as the church where do we fall with these platforms and what do we think what do we teach what do we believe where do we think Jesus would fall in and amongst all of these um, issues that Jesus probably never even imagined was going to be issues right when he was in first century Judea like we can have conversations I think I think, and you've hit on something really helpful, and I'm not sure this gives us like a, a perfect answer, but it does seem helpful to make the distinction. You helpfully noted there is maybe a difference between what gets said officially as like you speaking the word of God for the people out of the pulpit and the conversations that you're able to have one-on-one there that have that, well, I could be wrong, but here's why I think this, this, and this, and this. It makes me think a little bit of the distinction in the Roman Catholic tradition between when the Pope speaks ex cathedra and uh, when there are other pronouncements, you know, like, and again, there's reasons I'm not Roman Catholic and I'm not willing to go the Pope's infallible. Um, But that idea of that there's even distinction within Roman Catholic piety of like, there are some things that we treat as this is what the church stands for. And here's this non-negotiable. And then there's other things we can see nuance on in, in a parallel way. Uh, it reminds me of um, when you had 
groups in, say, the, the early 20th century in Germany or in Europe that were taking a stand against Hitler, there were questions about what is what they would call status confessionis. Like, this is one of those things the church stands or falls on. We got to be in line on this. And what are the ones that, no, we just have disagreements on. And uh, you had groups like Karl Barth's uh, that uh, created things like the Barman Declaration that was a stance against uh, Hitler's rise to power. And they sort of got to the point of, we are now clear enough on this particular issue, we cannot support the Nazi party taking over the, the German government or something like that. And that was a place where they were willing to draw a line in the sand. But there were lots of other things that they were were at different places on. And I guess I wonder if helping to have that kind of distinction, what are the things that we would call status confessionis? What are the things of like the church stops being Christianity if we succumb, if we give in on this? And then there are other things we can say, no, I can see how different Christians and different vantage points uh, are are in the way of Jesus or or are somehow uh, in the spirit of Jesus uh, and still come to different conclusions on this. And maybe the ability to say that there are sometimes shades of gray is exactly what allows us to say, but there are also times where things are clearly black or white and we can't be Christian and also say support Hitler. We can't be Christian and also support enslavement or something like that. Um, and to me, it seems like sometimes the ability to see in those clear situations is when you can also acknowledge but there not everything is black and white there are shades of gray that also allows you to then speak clearly about what is black and white maybe i don't know did we do it did we solve christian nationalism <laughs> I, i'm afraid there it's so nuanced and so a, much of a part of our culture that i i don't know if it will ever be solved before jesus comes back and I, I guess I do think along those lines that it's naive to imagine we can unring the bell of the last 1700 years. I mean, some, sometimes I'll read Christian uh, authors often out of the peace traditions, Mennonites or, or uh, Quakers or things like that, who sort of like imagine, well, Constantine was our problem if only we could get back to pre-Constantine. And we can't. That's that We can't erase the last 1700 years of history. We can't undo. And there's ways that Christianity has been entangled in empire for so long that's mm -hmm. something we have to name and lament and maybe repent of, but can't pretend it didn't happen. Um, and that, that's worth acknowledging, too, rather than thinking there's a simple quick fix there. I have long said that the church went wrong when Constantine came into power and made it the state church. Right. But like you and said, see, we can't change. I mean, that's 1700s of ingrained history that we have as a church that we can't change. And I guess one of the the, the, dif the difficulties is that you you helpfully named Sarah that unless we're willing to write off any meaningful conversation in the in the world we actually live on, unless we're only willing to say we're a spiritual thing only, we only talk about the afterlife, we're going to have to say uh, as Christians, our our faith in Jesus leads us to support this policy or this approach or this you know this kind of uh, issue or something like that. And how do we do that without then making the leap to, and therefore anything that puts us in power to enable to enact those agendas is right. I mean, I think mm. that that's if, if we, if we aren't, if we, if we don't let ourselves off the hook and say, well, we just say nothing. On the other hand, the temptation is, well, then we should dictate every conversation. And maybe instead the, the path forward is to say, it's okay if we aren't always in power, or maybe it's helpful if, like the prophets, we aren't in a position of particular power, but are able to speak a voice from the outside, uh, advocating for things without saying you have to listen to us because we're the church. Um, but that's also going to mean a very different way of engaging with the world. I, I'm, I'm thinking of something you said a couple of episodes ago, Sarah, where you talked about the power of the early church's witness 
that when early Christians were willing to die for their faith, it generated some interest. You know, like there were people like, my goodness, these Christians were willing to die for their faith. What is it that makes them so compelling? And I do think it's worth noting, even though we are not living in a time or a place right now where Christians are being crucified or fed to lions right now, but it's, it's a certain kind of power in the willingness to suffer, not the willingness to dominate others that has a certain kind of power to it. And it makes me think a little bit of the witness of, say, like a Dr. King in movements like uh, the Civil Rights Movement when they're they were convinced by their faith that they were called to speak up against say uh, segregation in the buses or something like that, or in the stores or whatever. And their way of protesting, their way of speaking up against it was we will be willing to bear the punishment of the state because we are standing up against it. Not that they were dictating. Everybody has to do what we want, but like we are, we are so committed to what we are doing. We are willing to suffer for it. And the power of that suffering becomes a tool for change. Um, And that it was not, I want this change so badly. I will, kill for it but i want this change so badly i'm willing to be wrongfully imprisoned for it to force other people to see wait a second a system that's willing to arrest people for sitting you know for for crossing a bridge something's wrong with that system we need to change it that there's a certain kind of power that you have if you're writing from the birmingham jail that you don't have if you're the one shooting people you don't agree with um and i guess i wonder if that may be a a a picture of what a helpful, faithful voice of Christianity looks like. Not just that we advocate for what we think are Christian goals, but that we follow the Jesus way of accomplishing those goals too. And that means suffering love I and mean, the willingness to be the ones in trouble, not the ones to put others in jail for d- doing things that we don't think they should do. But there's so many people that have those ideas flip-flopped in their mind. Right. You know, and and so how do we as religious leaders and pastors help them to see that they have flipped those ideas? To me, this is one of those places where like, as, as, a, as a pastor, like this is very much in our wheelhouse as Christian leaders who know the new Testament to make the case mm-hmm. where at the heart of Jesus ministry is God saves the world from a cross, not from, you know, a chariot, you know, that God saves the world in suffering love, not by killing or conquering. And to see how much at the heart of Jesus message is very much about that, you know, that it's the, the first shall be last. It's the blessed of the poor that like to actually follow the way of Jesus and the way he talks about the way the, the, the way to win is to lose your life as, and to give yourself away rather than to dominate others, to be in the position of servant rather than master. Um, and to me, that feels like I don't have to pretend to be a policy expert. I just need to be faithful to the New Testament there and go like, look at the way Jesus sees his movement making a difference in the world. It is not we're all going to raise up an army and conquer our enemies, even though people are mm-hmm. practically begging him to do that at every turn. Um, and there, I don't have to pretend that I know you know, the, the right level of the capital gains tax or, or uh, other, other contemporary details. But I can say, if we want to be faithful to the way of Jesus, it looks like the last shall be first in the, the way of suffering love, not we will conquer and destroy our enemies. But there are people out there who will call themselves Christians who have bumper stickers that say something along the line of Jesus had a gun, he wouldn't have died. Right. And again, to, to me, that feels like we've like we've got work to do. We we especially folks like us who have the calling to be public voices of faith. And in our own house, so to speak, within people who name the name of Jesus, say, I'm all for us being faithful to Jesus. Let's look at what Jesus actually did and said, because it doesn't mean we take up a, a weapon to go kill our enemies or we're afraid of being replaced by other people. So we have to you know, shoot up a, a grocery store. As to us, that the idea of, you know, 
dying on behalf of others and the sacrifice that Jesus made is second nature. We get that. We see that clearly in the gospel. And yet there's people that somehow miss it. Right. I I don't know how. Well, and to me, this feels also like a part of our work as Christian preachers is to say that the way we read the Bible is inescapably through the lens of Jesus and in particular through the Jesus who goes to the cross, not, you know, some conquering king or something like that. And that means that I'll read the Old Testament stories of theocracy in light of Jesus and go, okay, Jesus has not endorsed that we continue to do that. So just because it happened in the Bible doesn't mean I automatically have permission to do it. There's lots of stuff that happened in the Bible that I think we are clear on that that is not meant to be the example for us to copy, but a record of, yep, this happened and God still stuck with us anyway. Um, So to me, that's one of those like essential, uh, a Christian hermeneutic, a Christian way of interpreting the Bible is to say, Jesus has to be a part of how I interpret the whole story of scripture, not reading the Bible as if it happened anywhere, I'm given permission to do it. And we even said, when we talked about the Old Testament and the theodicy, yeah. Theocracy, yeah. Theocracy, that's, I always do that. (laughs) Um, You know, that that wasn't God's intention. Right, right, right. You know, even before Jesus came along, that was not God's intention. He just said, you know, fine, I'm giving... I'm going to let you do your own thing and let you figure it out. And you'll see how bad it is, right? Yeah. And you'll see how bad it is. You right. know, so even if we didn't have the example of Jesus, that God still doesn't say that that's, you know, what you should do. Right, right, right. So this, this may then, at least for us as leaders, falls back to us of part of our work is to be faithful in the ways we help people study the Bible to say, when we hear those kind of comments or when you get that sort of strand of, doesn't this mean that we should take power? Like, no, let's call it out. And let's say, no, that doesn't seem to be faithful to what's going on in this biblical text Mm -hmm. and to be how we lead, you know, Bible studies, how we lead, um, uh, uh, how we preach, how we, how we have other kinds of public conversations. And maybe like you said, Sarah, to be able to name, if there are places where we don't feel like this is something that is clear enough to be said from the pulpit, to be able to say in other venues and to create those other venues, whether it's the, you know, the adult class or the one-on-one conversation or the conversation you have with people over at a coffee house or something like that. Let's talk about this topic. And here's where, here's where I land. Here's why, but I'm open to being proven wrong or I'm open to hearing other voices. Even that, that openness to hearing other people's voices or that pushback changes the conversation uh, and make, maybe makes people more open to, to listening as well. I think it would be also too wise for us as pastoral leaders to be careful and cautious about when we are in public events that aren't in our churches, like what's the tone of those and how do they either uh, helpfully respect the boundaries of um, nation and church or how do they blur them? You know, like um, if I'm at an event or something like that, where the language of other people praying or the language of the official, you know, literature around or something like that is that what we want is for God to only bless our nation or that we're the most important. Like that, that to me raises red flags. Um, Whereas if I'm at an event where we can say like the line of that hymn, you know, I, I love my country and God has also made other countries and they have blue skies and trees as well. That seems an important line too when we're at public events. I think that we're going to need to dive deeper next week into, you know, Christian nationalism versus the reign of God. That seems wise. That seems wise. 
So if you want to help be part of conversation, like what do we do positively if we're seeking to be uh, the people of Jesus in the midst of a world that is tempted to fall into the usual means of power, join us next time uh, for one more episode here on Crazy Faith Talk. See ya. Bye.